Grace New Hope and the teaching ministry of Pastor Randy Rainwater. Today, Patrick, our adult ministry director, is teaching on dead to sin, allied to God. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans 5.1 as we start our new series, Revival. Let's listen now. If y'all would uh, stay standing, we're going to read uh, a section of scripture to get started tonight. If you'll open to the book of Romans chapter 6. The book of Romans chapter six. We're beginning our revival series this morning. Um, and uh, we're gonna look at what Paul says revival starts with. And uh, we're gonna be looking at Romans chapter five and six as the morning progresses through. But right now I'd love to read this great section from Romans chapter six, starting at verse six, going through 11. Romans six, six through 11. Read with me. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated and say hello to the people around you. Um, (laughs) I love being able to hear that hello that everybody gives to each other. It's really cool. I really love the worship this morning, the fact that it was It was acoustic, and I got to hear everybody sing. That was amazing. There's nothing like the sound of the people of God singing the praises of God in the company of God. Um, And so that was was really beautiful. Um, I want to say a quick word about Don. Thanks for praying with me. Um, Don is an elder here, um, and me and him are getting real close. Uh, (laughs) And uh, Don is a great man, and uh, he's kind of uh, overseeing adult ministry with me, the elder in charge of that. And, uh, and so I'm excited to work with Don um, as we move forward and as we, as we work on some things for adults. We got some things coming down the pike, don't we? We do. All right. Um, as we get started this morning, I, w- I want to kind of explain. I, if you've heard me teach before, you kind of can hear my style that I really enjoy theology. I really enjoy doctrine. Like, that's like my thing. I love that. And I think theology is incredibly important. Theology is what? The study of God right? If, if I say that I love my wife, I, we can almost call it wifeology. I want to study her, right? I want to know what makes her tick. I want to know those things that she enjoys. I want to please her in those ways with the things that she wants, right? And so, or we could call it husbandology for our wives in here, right? You want to study your husband. You want to know what your husband likes. You want to know what he loves. You want to know what makes him tick. And so I really enjoy theology, and I'll put it in that frame, that I love God Therefore, I want to know him. I want to know how to please him. So for me, theology is incredibly important. R.C. Sproul wrote a book called Everyone's a Theologian. We all study God to some degree, whether that God be the God of self or God be the one true God. And I want to throw throw some statistics up here because I came across these uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, One of my favorite ministries, Ligonier Ministries, um, I've been to conferences with them. I read books by them. They, uh, every year, they put out something called the State of Theology. And what they do is they survey U.S. adults and U.S. evangelicals. 
And then they put out this survey and they say, here's what American Christians believe. And I wanna throw some of these up here because theology is important. 57% of evangelicals agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. That makes me so happy that there were groans out there. Okay, that is really good. If we read the Bible, this is not the case. And in fact, I was doing some research this morning. Um, the heresy of Pelagianism says that everyone is born good and has the capacity to be perfect on their own. Pelagianism, Pelagian, Pelagianism was uh, declared a heresy and condemned by the church in 418 and 431. This is just an old heresy repackaged. 65% of evangelicals agree that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. That's Pelagianism. We are born in sin. We've looked at that in Romans chapter 3. Only 55% of evangelicals agree that sin deserves hell. Y'all, only 45% of us understand sin? 23%, almost a quarter of evangelicals agree that God is not concerned with our day-to-day -day activities. God is deeply concerned with our day-to-day -day activities. He calls us to live in a high standard, the perfect standard of Jesus Christ. He cares what you think. He cares what you eat. He cares what you say. He cares what you do. God cares about our day-to-day -day activities. 37% of evangelicals agree that religion is a matter of opinion. Y'all, if you have read the Bible, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There is only one way, and it is objective. God is objectively true, and what he says is true, and the God-man says he's the only way. I wanted to bring that up just to, because you know I love theology. I wanted to bring that up for, for you parents. Teach your kids deep theology. Teach them sound doctrine. If we're going to have revival we must have correct theology. We have to tell people the truth. We have to. Uh, this book of Romans, um, it's incredible. It's deep. It's comprehensive. Um, the way Paul describes everything about God, he, he actually includes the whole counsel of God in the book of Romans. And I think it's very fitting that we're starting here for our revival series in chapter five because we're gonna look at where Paul starts with human nature, and then talk about what Christ has done for us and how we are to respond to it. Revival might start individually and spread. So we have to look at our response to, um, to our natural state and to what Christ has done. John Stott, um, Peter, Peter Mintz, where are you at? Oh, there he is. Peter gave me a book called uh, Men Made New, and it was, about, it was an exposition from John Stott on Romans 5 through 8. I only read the introduction, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, uh, John Stott is this great Bible commentator and, and he, he kind of explains the whole book of Romans this way. He says, in the, uh, in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul unfolds the whole counsel of God, man's sin and his lostness, Christ's death to save him, faith in Christ as the sole condition of his acceptance, the work of the Holy Spirit for his growth and holiness, the place of Israel and the purpose of God, and the ethical implications of the gospel. There are ethical implications to what we read in this uh, deep theological book. I wanna um, recap us as we get into Romans chapter five. That's where I'm gonna start this morning. 
I want to recap Romans 1 through 4. Right in Romans 1, we see that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There will be no salvation without the gospel because the gospel says that you and I need a savior and God has provided one. And Paul also says that no person is without excuse because God has clearly revealed himself in nature. People should look around and say, wow, someone greater than me made this. No one is without excuse. And God's wrath is coming upon the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And in Romans 2, we see that God's kindness, he has restrained his wrath for a time. And his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Today is the day of salvation. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, a turning away from the world, a turning to God. And those who are patient in their well-doing will receive eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and obey unrighteousness will receive God's wrath and fury. But the good news is we're not on our own in that endeavor. The Holy Spirit spurs us on to those good works. In Romans 3, and I go to Romans 3 a lot. We talked about it in a gospel class that uh, Sheba and I are leading on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. Not happening today. Obviously, I'm up here. But we talked about sin and salvation And I always go to Romans 3 if you want to understand sin. All people everywhere are under sin. None is righteous, Paul tells us. No, not one. No one does good and no one seeks after God. That's us before Christ. But for those who have faith in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which is an appeasement of God's wrath, God crushed his son to appease his own wrath against us, For those who have faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified by God's grace. We are made right in the eyes of God. And then Romans 4, which we talked about the last couple of weeks, we see this explanation of Abraham's righteousness. Abraham, who was given the sign of circumcision, which some of the Jews at the time thought that that sign made him holy, made him righteous because he was doing that work to be a child of God or to be a child of Abraham, Genesis 15, 6 says, and he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's all we can stand on is faith. There is no work that we can do. And this righteousness is incredibly important because only the righteous can stand before God. But for those who have faith, Christ has given us his righteousness. We have become the righteousness of God through faith. And that's where Paul starts Romans chapter 5. Read with me at verse one. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse brings up a very important doctrine, justification. I kind of mentioned it. Randy mentioned it last couple of weeks. Justification is the declaration basically of not guilty. We're justified. We know the justice system, right? We have earned ourselves through our sin. We have earned ourselves the righteous condemnation of God. But here it says we've been justified by faith. We have been declared not guilty of the things that God has says you are guilty of because he already crushed his son for you. Justification, Martin Luther says, and Martin Luther, not not MLK, but Martin Luther in the 1500s, the father of the Reformation. Um, funny, Funny thing about the Reformation, uh, it happened on October 31st, 1517. 
So if you're wondering what I do on Halloween, I celebrate Reformation Day. I do not celebrate Halloween, okay? I put out a little, oh, we got some claps, all right. <laughs> I put out a bowl of candy and print the gospel and say, read this, right? But uh, I, don't know how many, I don't know how many kids actually wanna read um, what I write out there. <laughs> but, but I celebrate Reformation Day on October 31st. Um, R.C. Sproul defines justification this way, the act by which unjust sinners are made right in the sight of a just and holy God. But how can sinners be made right? How can we who have sinned and committed treason against the king of the universe, which what would a good king do if someone committed treason against him? He would kill him. That's, that's our punishment for treason. I mean, I don't know if we would actually ever meet that out in this country, but the punishment for treason is death. And so a good king, God is a good king. We have sinned against him. We've committed treason against him. How can he declare us righteous? Then he would not be a just God because he would not be punishing the evil. The only right thing for a holy and just God to do with sinners and lawbreakers is to punish. But God made a way for us to be justified and declared righteous in his sight. He's given us a gracious provision through the death of Jesus Christ as a complete atonement for sin. Complete atonement, which means you can't add to it. There's a complete atonement for sin in the death of Christ to which we respond in simple trust without any special claims or merit of our own. We cannot come to God and say, I partially got myself here. It is all the work of Jesus Christ. We are hopeless and helpless without him. Hopeless and helpless. But Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us, has been given to us through our faith because he took our sin on the cross and God poured out his wrath on his only son, punishing Jesus as if he was punishing us. He took our punishment for us and he's given us this righteousness and now we're declared not guilty because God has meted out the punishment and now we by faith are declared righteous. And we're gonna to return to this theme of peace, right? Paul says, through this justification, we now have peace with God. This means something. We're gonna get back to it. Read with me at verse two. Paul tells us that through Christ and only through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It is all because of Christ's work. I went to a conference back in August, Ligonier Conference, um, my favorite ministry. I went there, and one of the speakers, uh, his name is Burke Parsons, he presented us a question, and I want to present it to you and see what we say. Are we saved by works? That's what I, that's what I would have answered is no, right? But yes, no and yes, thank you, yes. We are not saved by our works, but we are saved by works. We are saved by the works of Jesus Christ. His passive obedience, his active obedience, his work of atonement on the cross, his being raised for our justification. We are saved by works, but not yours. By the works of Christ, we are saved. Paul then moves into something that we have a hard time understanding, and he talks about rejoicing in suffering. We, we don't really understand properly um, the suffering and persecution that the early church went to. But Paul says it was all for a reason. He says, we rejoice in this suffering because through suffering, as we endure, character is built. And as character is built, we hope in God who has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Everything that happens to us, 
Quick sidebar, everything that happens to us, God knows and he understands and he allows, but there's a purpose behind it. The purpose of our suffering is to conform us into the image of Christ. That is the goal of Christianity. So everything that happens in our life, if you have that, if you have that broad view, that long view of history and understand that God is allowing this to happen so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ, it will bring you comfort to know that God is with you and he knows what you're going through. We should rejoice in our persecutions. Look with me to verse six, chapter five, verse six. And Paul starts to build a case here for how Christ has loved us. And he starts to talk about our natural state. He says in verse six, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The word here used for weak is asthenes. And it means without strength or in context, other places, it means unable to achieve anything great. On our own, we are unable to achieve anything great. While we could not save ourselves, while we were weak and could not do what we ought to do, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse eight but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we have, while we were weak, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the word for sinners is homartolos. And it means someone devoted to sin, not just someone who does sin, someone devoted to sin. And we know what devotion is. If you're married, you're supposed to be devoted to your wife, right? Not just someone who sins, but someone who is devoted to sin. Paul tells us while we were devoted to evil, while we were devoted to sin, while we were devoted and sacrificing and in love with our sin, Christ died for us. When you love something, you sacrifice for it. Before I was saved, I loved alcohol and I sacrificed for it. My bank account sacrificed for it because that's what I loved and I sacrificed for it. I gave things up to go out and drink because I loved it. But while we were sinners, while I was doing that, Christ died for me. While we were weak and while we were sinners, Christ died for us because God is rich in mercy and he made that sacrifice. Paul goes on to tell us that since we've been justified, right? Since we've been brought into this right legal standing, we have been justified by the blood of Christ. How much more will we be saved by God's wrath by Christ? It's that Christ like holds us and contains us and says, not these, these are mine. What an amazing statement of hope that Christ will save us from the wrath of God. Not only are we declared not guilty of our treasonous crimes, but we are being saved by Christ from the destructive wrath of God. And as you read on in verse 10, and this is where Paul brings his argument to a conclusion. Remember, we're weak, we're sinners. And here he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This word reconciliation has a profound meaning to our faith. When we think of reconciliation in our own lives, um, we think about maybe I've done Don wrong, right? And so to be reconciled, I need to go to Don and I need to apologize and ask for forgiveness. And then if Don accepts, then we're reconciled. I'm the one who did wrong. He did not do any wrong, but I go to him. In the case of reconciliation with God, 
He is the wronged party. He is the one that we have offended. And he comes to us and says, I forgive you by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to God because of Jesus Christ. The word reconciliation has a sense of two warring parties, two enemies, two people at war with each other, not just coming together to be at a truce, but to actually become friends and become a family. Two estranged parties coming together. If you are in Christ, you are reconciled to God. And Paul tells us elsewhere that he, he, uh, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation to plead with men to be reconciled to God, to plead with men and women, to go out there and say, please be reconciled to God. Christ has died for you. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Paul moves next into the, as he closes out chapter five, to this section of discussing how sin came into the world. Remember, Christ died for us as sinners. So Paul's now telling us how we became sinners. If we look at, if we look at um, uh, chapter five, verses 18 to 21, chapter five, verses 18 to 21, Paul says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's Adam. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, in sin, uh, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Earlier in chapter three, we looked at our natural condition as sinners and nobody's righteous and no one does good, not even one. And here Paul says that you are all under condemnation. You are all sinners because Adam sinned and Adam is everyone's father. Now, husbands, I want you to hear this. Remember who was tempted first. Eve was tempted first. But the blame for all of humanity being fallen in sin rests on Adam's shoulders. Mm. I don't, I guess we'll talk after this. Thanks. <laughs> but the blame rests on the husband's shoulders. Under the new covenant, under the new covenant, this is the only generational curse. Under the new covenant, the only generational curse is the curse of sin. Forgot where I was going. <laughs> you, got me all, you got me all messed up over there, Banks. Under the new covenant, this is the only generational curse that exists, and it's the curse of Adam, the curse of death because of sin. But how do I know, how do I know that this and nothing else is a generational curse? How do I know that for those who trust in Jesus, all curses are broken? Galatians chapter three, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, Christ redeemed us, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Christ became a curse for us and has broken any generational curse. For those who come to faith in Christ, they've been made new. Now, this doesn't mean that sons can't commit the same sins as their fathers or daughters commit the same sins as their mothers. We tend to emulate um, our parents and maybe make some of the same mistakes that they've made. Christian, I've seen you out there this morning. 
Christian. Um, Christian gave his testimony at our men's night this past night. And Christian has a powerful testimony. He's going to the army in two weeks. And we're very proud of him for that. And Christian told, he gave a little bit of insight into what his father had done. His father left. And Christian stood up here on Friday night in front of a bunch of men and said, I will not make the same mistakes that my father made. I will not leave my family. That's how you break a generational curse. For those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, you can make the next right decision. You can, and that is exactly what Christian is doing. We've been freed. If we're a part of Christ, we've been freed from the slavery to sin. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and we can choose the next right thing. And this is all because of Jesus. So Paul asks us a question to begin Romans chapter six. He says, uh, remember he said at the end of chapter five, if grace increases as sin increases, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says, by no means. How can we, and this, oh, this verse right here, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christ has died. We have died with him. Christ has been raised. We have been raised to walk in newness of life. What a great question from Paul here. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I've recently heard this new acronym. Um, if, you're, if you follow politics at all, um, there's an acronym called RINO, R-I-N-O, and it means Republican in name only. And these are, this is a disparaging remark for Republicans who don't always vote with Republicans. And it's just the whole thing. We're not getting into politics here. But I wanted to show this. I've heard this one recently. Sino, Christian in name only. Christian in name only. And I don't understand this. I don't. And maybe it's because I came to faith later in life. And, um, and I just don't understand people who, and I'm not, if, I'm, I don't want to disparage us here, but I want to say that there, we're called to something bigger and better. We're called to follow Christ. But for those who call themselves Christians, just because it's the thing to do in their family, that's not counting the cost of following Christ. For those who call themselves Christians, uh, but continue to live in the sin that Jesus demanded we forsake. That's tough. You can't live a life like that. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Those who call themselves Christians, but continually bow down to the culture and all of its whims and are taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. We must be on guard for our minds. We have to understand God. We have to, not that you will hear, like totally, our minds are finite. We can't possibly fully comprehend an infinite God. But we must guard our minds and we must study God. And we must say, we must be able to discern in the culture that that is a lie and that is truth. We have to discern these things. I'm not saying that I'm not guilty of following worldly philosophy at times. I certainly am. But when we find ourselves saying yes to the world constantly, we are saying no to God. We will all sin until the day we die. But Paul says here, how can you live in sin, right? In Romans 7, which I don't know if we're gonna, 
I can't remember where Sheba and Randy are in the next rotation, but in Romans 7, Paul describes the Christian life. The good things I want to do, I don't do. The bad things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Who will deliver me from this body of death? (laughs) Thanks be to God is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how he ends chapter 7. And then chapter 8 is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? It's beautiful, but we will all sin until the day we die. But Paul says, how can you live in it? If you've died to it, how can you live in it? We cannot make sin our lifestyle. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There is a renewal of desires. There's a renewal of attitudes. There's a renewal of appetites. The things that you crave are made new and different. There's something new and different about a Christian who's walking in this newness of life. They do not conform to the patterns of the world. They love and forgive as Christ has. They set their minds on the true things, the honorable things, the pure things, the just things, the lovely things, the commendable things, and they praise God. That's Philippians 4.8. There is a newness of life, and we are to walk in it. Following in the footsteps of Christ, being a Christ follower as we are, Paul exhorts us in verse 11 of chapter 6 to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. But how do we do this? Don't worry, Paul gives us the answer. If you look with me at verses 12 through 14, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, Paul gets really practical. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin sit on the throne of your life. That's what Paul says. How can I walk in newness of life? How can I consider myself dead to sin and alive to God? Don't let sin rule you. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul is very practical here. When he tells us not to present our members to sin, he's literally talking about physical parts of the body. We can use our imaginations in ancient Roman culture to understand what member he might be talking about. But the principle is the same for everything in your body. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30 in the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be going through maybe in the spring. I got a head nod. Okay, I got a head nod. I don't know if that was secret information. I'm, I'm ruining it here, Randy. Sorry. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in reference to adultery, and you all know this, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Could this be hyperbole? Yes. Could Jesus be giving practical advice to pluck out your eye and cut off your hand? Probably not. But what is the principle here? What are you willing to cut out of your life? Men, because he was speaking to men here, to ensure that we are that we are honoring our wives with our eyes, that we are honoring our wives with our hands, how far are we willing to go to walk in newness of life? The principle is that we need to take drastic measures to ensure that we're living pure and holy lives. 
What safeguards are we placing around ourselves? What safeguards are we placing around our children to ensure that the leaven of the world does not seep in and destroy? What safeguards? I, I, well, right before I got married, um, so I have a history with pornography and I would watch porn every single day before I became a Christian. And I told, obviously I was, uh, I met my wife here. We were not married. I met my wife here uh, after I was converted. And we made the decision because obviously I was honest with her about my sexual history and my, and my past and, and the temptations that I deal with in my life. And we made the decision before we got married that I would download Covenant Eyes on my phone and on my laptop. And what Covenant Eyes does, it's $15 a month, and that's a small price to pay to ensure that my eyes are staying safe. Um, what, it, what Covenant Eyes does is it captures all of the screen data, everything that I look at on my phone and on my laptop, as well, as well as preventing me from going to those sites. I have two accountability partners, Josh Alleman and Chris Heidler. They get weekly reports of everything that I look at. How far are we willing to go? How far are we willing to go? $15? That's easy. But how far are we willing to go? What do you watch on TV? What music do you listen to? What books do you read? These things matter in our lives. Sin kills. Sin kills. And I want to, I got this illustration from Sheba, who she's at a wedding this weekend, but I got this illustration from her. We've dealt with cancer in this church. We have, as most people in their lives will either have cancer or watch someone who does have cancer that they love. And we've dealt with cancer in this church. What do doctors do when they find cancer? They want to kill the cancer because, because why? Because it's killing you. If a doctor wants to cut out cancer because it's killing you, killing your physical body, how much more should we cut out sin that is killing our soul? Doctors cut out cancer to save you. Jesus wants you to rid and cleanse your life of sin because it is also killing you. And Paul tells us that we need to present ourselves and our instruments, or we need to present ourselves and our members as instruments of righteousness to God. Are we determined to keep our minds and hearts clean? Paul goes even deeper in this last section of chapter six. And David, if you're ready, uh, I'm ready for you. Um, this last section of chapter six, read with me, uh, starting at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. If you present yourself and your members to be a slave to sin, you will be a slave to sin. But if you present yourself and your members to God as an instrument of righteousness, God will help you through that. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have now become slaves of righteousness. We've now become slaves of righteousness. When we are outside of Christ, we have no choice but to obey our sinly passions, our sinful passions and sinful desires. This is the truth. of This doesn't mean that Bill Gates can't do something good with his money. That's not what this is talking about. This is saying that you will serve. This is saying that you will serve sin if you choose to. And outside of Christ, you will be a slave to sin. 
But what does Jesus say in John chapter eight, verse 34? Jesus answered, the Jews who said that they were children of Abraham and they'd never been slaves to anybody. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Our natural condition is slave to sin. But what has Christ done for us? Set us free. If we are truly in Christ, we are free from being a slave to sin. Remember, this doesn't mean you won't sin. But now you're free to choose the good things. You're free to choose the good things. Our natural condition is a slave to sin. And slaves have no control. Slaves must obey their masters. When we are on our own, we had to obey our sinful desires. But if Christ has saved you, you are free from the bondage of sin and have instead become a slave of righteousness. And there's joy in being obedient to God. Psalm 119, just read it. <laughs> just read it, it's long, I don't have it memorized. Just go read that. We have the ability to say yes to the things of God and we have the ability to say no to the pornography, no to the anger, no to the gossip. We have that ability now because the Holy Spirit resides within us. We are to remember our state before Christ. Band, I'm ready. We are to remember our state before Christ. We are to remember where we came from and the sin that we served and to always be grateful that Christ has taken us out of those situations. And now we present ourselves literally. This is saying, it, it, when Paul says present yourselves, he means place yourself at God's disposal. We can present ourselves as a slave to righteousness, to be consumed with the things of God. Romans 6 ends with Paul asking, what kind of fruit has this um, sin produced in your life? It's a constant reminder that sin produces death. The sin that we love so much, the sin that we sacrificed for, the sin that we were slaves to caused many things in our lives. It caused strife in relationships. It caused broken hearts. It causes sexual immorality. Sometimes sin causes physical harm. Either we're committing it or it's being committed against us. And so Paul is saying, what kind of fruit has that sin produced in your life? Paul's question is a good one to remind us that sin leads to death. James 1, verses 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin, if it is lived in and practiced, will cause not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. But Paul says in verse 22 of chapter six, now that you've been set free, he's saying this isn't your final state. Now that you've been set free, you've been set free from sin, you've become slaves of God, the fruit that you now get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We've been set free from the slavery to sin by our faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He has set us free from bondage. He has set us free from that slavery. And what effect has this had on our lives? What does Paul tell us? Now that we're slaves of God, now that we're slaves of righteousness, now that we've presented ourselves at God's disposal, there's good fruit. There is good fruit. The fruit of sanctification that leads to eternal life. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, 
Self-control. I thought I missed one on Friday. Did I get them all today? Okay. But where you, I want, and I wanna make this point here, where you are rooted matters. If you are a slave to sin, consider that, that you're rooted in sin. And the tree will expose the fruit of that. If you're a slave of God and a slave of righteousness, if you presented yourself, if you presented yourself to God and you're rooted in Christ, there will be fruit that exposes that. Where you are rooted matters. May we examine ourselves for this fruit and pray for Christ to produce more of it in our lives. Paul ends Romans 6 with this verse in 23. It ends with incredibly good news. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You cannot pay for it. It is free. You and I were bought with a price. It cost God something to purchase you, to purchase me. We were bought with the blood of Christ. We were redeemed and purchased by him. We can't bargain for our own salvation. It is all Christ's work. Remember, we're saved by his work, not ours. We cannot bargain for our own salvation. The due penalty for our sin is death. But God, in his mercy, has provided a free gift to us that costs you nothing except to forsake the world and follow Christ and be obedient. Let us always remember that if we're in Christ, we are dead to sin. He is dead to sin and alive to God. We are dead to sin and alive to God. Let us live like that. Let us live like that because he's provided the free gift of eternal life. Let us be grateful and be obedient. Let us consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. What a beautiful day it is. And regardless of the weather, we get to come here and worship and rejoice in your goodness with your children, all of us, brothers and sisters, together in Christ, in the family of God. Thank you for Paul, your servant in Romans 5 and 6, who just lays out some of these incredibly deep truths. And will you help us to always remember that we are dead to sin and alive to God, only by your power, only by your spirit. In Jesus' name.